Again, glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts 14. My name is uh, David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. Get my situated here. So last week, uh, we've been working through Acts. Last week, we looked at uh, the second stage of this missionary journey Paul and Barnabas have been on. We said it was the first ever intentional mission trip. So you have Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy um, into some uh, unreached places. The red line is where they've gone. So they start up in Antioch and then they move down to Cyprus and work across that island. They jump in a boat, sail up to Perga. It's a hundred mile walk to this other place called Antioch. There's 12 or I think it's 12 or 16 towns called Antioch during this point. So they're in a, a different Antioch. That's what we looked at last week. And they were up there uh, doing pretty well. And then there was some Jews who disagreed with them and disagreed with their message. And so they started inciting some trouble. Uh, Paul and Barnabas came under some level of persecution and they were actually expelled. That's the word at the end of Acts chapter 14. They were expelled from the region. So they're kicked out of Antioch. And then we're going to look at those three green dots. They go, I think it's 60 miles, uh, 90 miles to Iconium, then 20 miles south to Lystra. Then they travel um, 60 miles over to Derby, and then they travel all the way back. That's the blue line. So that's what we're going to look at today. So it's it's really the second half of their journey. Those last three towns that are all smaller. We looked at uh, Pisidian Antioch last week. It's a really big city. These are uh, these are smaller towns that they're going through, and then their return trip home. Probably the whole thing takes uh, a year, maybe maybe a little longer, but they're they're gone for probably at least a year uh, from when they were sent out. Um, at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. So we're going to start in Acts 14 chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogues. We said that's, that's what they regularly do, show up in the synagogues. Uh, they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But Paul and Barnabas found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So again... They always go to the Jews first. If there's a synagogue, Jesus was sent as a Jewish Messiah. That's a good starting point. You've got some common ground there. We talked last week about the importance of building common ground with people. They go to the synagogue. Their preaching is met with success. People are responding. You've got Jews responding. You also have these uh, Greeks or these Gentiles who fear God. They recognize Israel's God as the one true God, but they're not full converts. They haven't converted fully to Judaism, and both people from both of those groups are saying yes to Jesus as the Messiah, but you've got this other group, these Jews who disagree. And so over time, the city is divided. You've got people who agree with Paul and Barnabas, and you have people who disagree with them. Um, and then, again, over time, you've got this, at least some group within this synagogue says, we're tired of these guys. They're, they're 
heretics, they're blasphemers, they're taking our people, we've got to get rid of them. And so they create this plot to mistreat that really has to do with what they say about them and also to stone them. Paul and Barnabas hear about it and then they leave. And so when we look at those first seven verses, it's maybe where we live, it's easy to forget this, but the gospel is divisive. And Jesus, Jesus said that. He said, I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He said he even divides families from themselves. I divide mother against father and father against mother. And I divide, you know, I divide families two and three and three and two. And that's what I do. And it's not that he does those things, you know, joyfully, but he's the king and he demands complete allegiance to him. He He says, I'm first priority. His kingdom is complete. There's no area of our life that it doesn't encompass. And so to follow him means you can't follow anyone else. He says you can't serve two masters, and I'm one of them. And so you're, you're either you're serving me or you're not. And so he does bring divisiveness. Uh, you may not remember this verse in Exodus 31. God actually says, my name is Jealous. That's what he says. That's, you can call me Jealous. If you go back and read in your Bible, Jealous is capitalized. It's a name for God. I'm a jealous God. And in that context in Exodus 31, he's talking about worship and service, but it's really God saying the things that are mine, I don't share, is what God is saying. I don't share. Worship is for me. It's not for any other God, so you can't worship them. I'm a jealous God. And we're his also. We're his, we're his by creation. He formed us and knit us together in our mother's womb. We're also his by redemption. He bought us with the price, the blood of his son. We're his, and he, he doesn't share, and he doesn't make any apologies. For that, the gospel is divisive. You can think of it in terms of allegiance and you can think of it in terms of relationship. Allegiance, you can only have one master, you can only have one king. Relationship, we're his and he doesn't share us with anyone else. And so, that, again, not always, and again, not necessarily where we live do we see this nearly as much as you would in countries that have other dominant religions, but it is true. The gospel is divisive, it divided. This city, Paul doesn't make any apologies for that. you got to choose. Are you with me or, or are you not? Created controversy, persecution is, is on the way, and Paul and Barnabas leave. They travel um, to this town, Lystra. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had, ne- he had been this way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends! Why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, God let all nations go their own own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. 
But after the disciples had gathered around them, he got up and went back to the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So they moved. This seems to be the, a town that doesn't have a synagogue. This is the first time we see Paul and Barnabas going anywhere where they don't start in a synagogue, and there don't seem to be any Jews in this town of Lystra. And there are a couple of reasons that I say that, but there don't appear to be any Jews. So this looks like the first time Paul is in a city that's completely uh, pagan, where there's, there's no c- common connection to God, to the Old Testament, to the, the prophecies or predictions of a coming Messiah. So he's dealing with people who don't know anything about anything that he's talking about. And so he starts preaching, I guess, in the open air because there's not a synagogue. So he's maybe in the town square or something. He's preaching and he sees a guy. And, and the Bible says Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of spiritual gifts. And one of those gifts is called a word of knowledge. And that, that, the idea behind that is you have some insight or you know something that you couldn't know unless God told you. And I think that's what's happening here. Paul's able to see something in this guy. I think he looks at this guy and he hears God say, he's, he's ready. He's got faith to be healed. The guy wasn't glowing or anything like that. He just saw him. And so he says to this guy who's never taken a step in his whole life, you know, get up and be healed. It reminds us of the story um, with Peter and John way back in Acts Chapter 3, almost the exact same thing happens at the temple in Jerusalem. And this guy gets up, and everyone in the city then is, they're going nuts. That's, this guy has, is a grown man, never taken a step, been crippled his whole life. Now suddenly, these two guys show up. They're preaching about this guy, Jesus, who they have never heard of in their whole life. They've never heard of him, but in his name, this guy is now walking. And so they're saying the gods have come to town. And so they're speaking in their own language. Paul and Barnabas don't know that language. They know Greek, and that's what they would have been preaching in. They don't know the, the local dialect. So those guys are preaching in Lycaonian or talking in that language. And so Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. There's just an uproar, but they're probably they're used to that when people uh, you know, are healed and where there's some sign or wonder. They're probably used to there being some kind of commotion. But then some guys bring in bulls and wreaths, and they go, uh-oh, this is not going the way we want it to. They tear their clothes, which is a protest against blasphemy. You may remember that happens with the, uh, the high priest when Jesus is before him. And the high priest says, this is the last night of his life, he says, are you, this, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, yeah. And the guy tears his robe and says, this is blasphemy. It's a protest against blasphemy. So they tear their clothes and they're going, y'all are missing this completely. We are not, we're just like y'all. We're just people. We are not gods. And he has to start, and he, he, and he preaches this little mini-message. He doesn't even get through it. He's just trying to establish some common ground. Again, we talked about that last week, the importance of establishing common ground. And he's trying with people that don't know anything about anything. And so he starts with gods, and I believe in God, singular. Y'all believe in gods, plural. When we both believe they created. So let's start with there. We'll, we'll start with a creator, And we need this creator. He's given us good things. He's taking care of us. And as he's talking, we've got this group of Jews that shows up. And some of them have walked over 100 miles. That's how far it is from Antioch to Lystra. Those guys are ticked at Paul if they're tracking him down 100 miles away. They didn't jump in the car. It's a lot of walking that they did just to give him a hard time. That's how incensed they are 
at this message that he's preaching and at the effect that it's having. There, I don't have nothing to indicate there's any Jewish presence. He doesn't start in a synagogue, which he always does. The message he preaches doesn't reference anything at all in the Old Testament. He starts with, we both believe that there are beings out there that create. He doesn't do that. The only other time he does that is in Athens, which again is a very pagan city. I don't, and so the Jews are going to a city where they don't even have people just to rile everybody up against Paul. And I don't know how they win the crowds over. It doesn't say. I mean, he, they've just seen a guy get up and walk. And I don't know how they're, they're able to win the crowds over from wanting to worship Paul and Barnabas to trying to kill them. But they do. There's actually a story that Zeus and Hermes had appeared in this region before. And that only one couple, this old couple, recognized them. And so this elderly couple invites these two gods into their house and feeds them. And as a reward, their cottage is turned into this castle. It's turned into this kind of magnificent temple. And everyone else who didn't recognize the gods, their houses are flooded because that's how those gods are. They're very fickle. And so the idea maybe is, hey, we don't want that to happen again. And so when Paul and Barnabas, when they heal this guy, they're going, we don't want, we don't want our houses to be flooded. We don't want to burn. We want... If these are the gods, we want to make sure that we're recognizing and honoring them. I don't know. But maybe that's what's going on. And then when Paul and Barnabas say, no, we're not gods. We're regular guys. We don't want you sacrificing to us. Maybe the Jews are able to ride in on that in some way and say, these guys are frauds. These guys are imposters. You can't trust them. And maybe the guy, maybe some of these folks are a little embarrassed because they got to, you know, you have a priest from Zeus's temple shows up with the bull and says, this is Zeus. And the guy's going, you're, you're actually wrong. I'm not. And that problem, that may create something there. And so for whatever reason, everybody gets angry and they start stoning Paul because he's the one who talks the most for Barnabas gets out of it. So Paul gets stoned to the point that they think he's dead. So he's in, he's in bad shape. They drag him out of the city. I think it's miraculous the way Paul recovers. It may not be. It just says that, 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 uh, people gather around him, which makes me think, well, they may have been praying for him. And then he gets up and walks back into the city. But to go from people thinking you're dead to walking back up into the city that quickly, I think there was probably a miracle there, but, but there doesn't have to be. So Paul goes back into the city and then he and Barnabas leave. The next day, I was thinking about this and again, that importance we talked about last week of establishing common ground and that for some of y'all, that is a gift and you minimize it. You think it's easy because you connect with people so readily. It's easy for you to establish relationship and you don't think it's a big deal. It is a huge deal. Big. It's massive. It's a spiritual gift in a lot of ways. It's In some ways, it's almost a, a precursor to the gift of evangelism, that you're able to make connections with people quickly and easily, and they feel at home and warm in your presence. Last week, we talked when, when Paul is, is, is establishing relationship, he's doing it with people who have a similar religious background. Hey, we both believe in the Old Testament. We both believe in God. Remember all of these promises that we both think God fulfilled to our ancestors over these hundreds of years. And then he uses that as a springboard to talk about Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment. Today, he's, talk, he's talking with guys that don't know anything about anything. This is called the Engel Scale. It was written, it's created by a guy named Engel um, about 40 years ago. And he wrote a book in 1975, and he was saying, what's wrong? How come we're not seeing people come to the Lord? And his conclusion was, because we assume everybody is at the same spot. 
So we're using a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. We don't recognize that now we live in a country, and how much more so is this the case 40 years later, where you can't assume a common religious foundation. The, the, the steps don't matter. It doesn't matter what those things say, just what one guy came up with, and this has been refined over the last 40 years and tweaked and all of those things. But the thing for I wanted you to see, and that which you know this, everybody's not coming from the same spot. And these guys who Paul's talking to today, they're way down at the bottom. They don't have any awareness of anything. They think Zeus and Hermes are their gods and that they show up in human form. That's what they're thinking. And so Paul starts way back with them. Hey, we all believe in a creator being. With the Jews, he's able to start with, we believe in one God, the God of the Old Testament, and he is a promise-keeping God. And he has said he's going to send a Messiah. That's a completely different spot. And again, for some of you, you are gifted at connecting with people all up and down that staircase. And I don't want you to minimize that gift, that super, super important to what God wants to do in our community. And we said last week, you got to build on it. That's the thing for many of us. How do I build on this common foundation? I'm great at establishing relationships. How do I take that relationship and inject some level of spiritual truth and grace and life? Into it, Paul doesn't get a chance because people start throwing rocks at him. I don't think that will be the case. I hope that's not the case for you. But I do want to encourage those of you who are gifted this way. Again, it's easy for some of you to minimize and think this is not this is not special. This isn't a gift. This isn't anything. There's nothing great about this. And I want you to recognize how important it is to what God is doing uh, in our city, in our community, even in our world, to have bridge builders, people who can connect with folks all up and down this scale, people who can make connections, relationships, and help other people uh, feel welcome and at home. So they move on. They preached the gospel in Derby, in that city, and they won a large number of disciples. Then Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So that's their coming home. What I want you to recognize about them coming home, they took a route that it was not the the quickest route at all. And it was by far not the safest. So they go back to the places where they had just been stoned and threatened and expelled from. They go back to Lystra, where Paul had been stoned to the point of people thinking he was... They go back to Antioch, where he had been expelled, where they had been expelled, kicked out of the region. They go back and visit all of those places. I want you to see, for for me, that's a picture of how deeply Paul and Barnabas care about these churches. They move from place to place, and they do so quickly, but they're deeply invested in the people who they leave behind to the point of risking their own lives going back through to make sure everybody's okay. They strengthen, they encourage, they appoint leaders. To me, all of that has to do with, some of you disagree with me on this theologically, but for me, when I look at this, what he's saying is, I want to make sure none of these guys fall away. They had an initial yes, and I want to make sure they stand firm to the end. I don't want any of them 
to fall away from the faith. I want all of them to, to make it until either Jesus returns or they die. I want them to be faithful until the end. And so they go back through and strengthen all of these churches. They provide leadership. Here's some guys who can help shepherd you and help you grow. They help that, that also helps form a congregation. Here's some people who are doing this with you so you're not out there on your own. And so they go back through these cities and they jump on a boat and they go home and they say, we, mission accomplished. We did what you sent us out to do. So I, I was thinking about that, this whole idea. It's through many hardships that we enter the kingdom. Paul and Barnabas taking this huge risk to go back through these cities. It reminded me of the parable of the soils. You remember that parable? It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the things Jesus says, one of the types of soil, is he talks about rocky or shallow soil. And he says when trouble or persecution comes... Seed that's been sown in this rocky or shallow soil, and we said that soil is your heart. It's a metaphor for your heart. So the gospel, if it's sown in a heart that's shallow or rocky, there's not going to be deep roots. And so when trouble or persecution come, and that word trouble is the same word as hardship here in Acts 14. The word trouble in Matthew 13, when Jesus tells the parable, is the same word. It's the exact same word as hardship that we read here in Acts 14. So when that stuff comes... You're not going to have any roots. You're not going to be strong enough in your faith. You're going, to, you're going to fail. You're going to wither and die. You're going to walk away. You're going to bail. You're going to quit, however you want to see that. Again, for some of you theologically, you disagree with me on exactly what that means. But for me, it's people who've said yes to Jesus and then have stopped following him at some point because things have gotten too difficult. They, their roots aren't deep enough in him. And I see Paul saying, it's a huge deal. Let's make sure. Let me strengthen you. Let me encourage you. Let me provide you with leadership so that doesn't happen to you. And we don't want that to happen to us. Paul obviously has a lot of credibility when it comes to speaking about hardships. He had just been stoned. And so he could say, this is not necessarily going to be easy for you moving forward. That's not a reason to quit. I want to make sure that you guys have faith to stand firm. So I was thinking of two questions for me. You may have other things that you thought about as We read through that passage. Two questions jumped into my mind. The first question was, what do I have faith for? So this guy, this lame man, had never heard the gospel, never heard about Jesus. The first time he hears, there's enough of understanding, there's enough stirring in his heart to say, that guy, I bet he can heal my foot. I've never taken a step ever in my life, but this guy who Paul is talking about, I think he's the key. I've been a Christian for 29 years, and I don't, I'm going, I don't, I don't know that I have faith for that. It's a challenge to me to think about this guy who's never heard the gospel. It seems like the first time he hears stirs enough faith in him to say, that guy can heal me. And it makes me wonder, well, what do I have faith for? What am I believing God for? We talked a few weeks ago about this idea of praying earnestly, and I think praying earnestly and having faith for things are tied together. Praying earnestly, we talk about, that means praying with perseverance and intensity. It's praying with our heart, getting our heart involved, not just our brain, not just our mind. And so I think about the things that I, if my heart is involved, if I'm praying with my heart, those are probably things that I'm trusting God to do. If I'm not trusting God to do things, I'm probably not praying with my heart. I may be going through a checklist God, do this, do this, I ask you to move in this situation. But I'm probably not engaging my heart if I don't actually trust him to work in that 
situation. So to me, those two things go hand in hand. So what am I believing God for? Well, maybe I can look and say, well, what am I earnestly praying for? And if I'm not earnestly praying for anything, then I'm probably not believing God for anything. That makes sense. And that may not resonate with you, but that's kind of, I see those things tying together. That's an earnestly praying is an, an expression of faith. It's an expression of trusting God to work in a particular situation or circumstance. And so for you, a challenge, if you're not already doing this, what would it look like for you to take one thing and say, I'm going to, I'm going to believe God to move. I'm going to, I'm going to earnestly pray about a particular circumstance. And you can pick anything you want as long as it's bigger than you. If it's something that you can handle, I don't want you to pray about it. And if it's something that honestly you really don't care, if God works, then that doesn't count either. It's got to be something that you actually feel that you carry with you. If you carry it with you, and it's something that's beyond your capacity to solve, fix, work on your own, I want you to just grab onto it. It can be personal. It can be something about your physical health. You may be like the lady... Um, who has, you know, who's been bleeding for however many, 12 years, and she's like, she spent all her money on doctors and nobody's helping. That may be you. You're going, nobody's helping me. I've gone everywhere there is to go, and it's not getting any better. And do you feel, do you, in your heart, can you say, yeah, I can carry that, and I'm going to ask the Lord. I want to see some breakthrough in this area. I'm going to earnestly pray for you to heal me. It may be a relationship that you're in, and it's not going anywhere. And you, you've done your part, and the other person, it's just not happening. Or maybe it's your own heart and it's not happening. You're really struggling with forgiveness or grace or whatever those things are. And you want to pray about that. It's something personal. But it's bigger than you, if that makes sense. Grab onto that. Pray about that earnestly. Just for the rest of the month. September 11th, run through the end of September. See if there's any change. Maybe you want to think socially. Those are just some stats up there. They're just ones I pulled out. There's plenty of different things socially. Plenty of things that go on in our community or then they go on in your school or your workplace and you say, I'm going to go after this one thing. I'm going to pray for this one area. But again, only if it stirs your heart. Don't pick something just to pick it. If it doesn't stir your heart, you're not going to carry it in prayer uh, with any type of intensity or perseverance. Maybe you want to think globally. Again, that's just a stat up there on the screen. 42% of the people alive today have never heard the gospel and they're living in a place where they're not going to hear it unless somebody shows up. They're not. There's nobody in their town. There's nobody in their village. There's nobody in their province who can tell them who Jesus is. So unless somebody comes in from the outside, they're done. 42% of the people alive in the world today, that is their spiritual condition. It's terrible. And maybe that stirs your heart. And you say, I'm going to pray earnestly about that. And you may want to narrow down on different places, and you can, you can do some research on all of that to figure out exactly where you want to pray if you don't want to pray about that. 3.2 billion, which is unfathomable at such a big number. So, pray earnestly. I want to see. I want all of us to say, you know what, there's something. I want to have faith for something. I don't just want to go through my day. I don't just want, you know, kind of Jesus as my buddy. I want to say, you're the king. You triumphed over sin and Satan and sickness and death. God, you're on the throne of the universe. You created everything just by talking just by speaking, you created everything that, that there is. Everything I can see and everything I can't see. Everything that ever was and is and ever will be. You did all of that. 
just by talking. You didn't break a sweat. And you invite me in as close as I can get. You who created all of those things just by speaking also say you're my father. And that I can have access to you through my relationship with your son. You invite me into your house to sit at your table. That's Luke 15, the parable of the lost son. Come and sit at the table with me. That's what you're inviting me into. So why in the world would I not take advantage of that? Why in the world would I never say, hey, what about this? So I want to encourage you. Pray earnestly. Have faith for something intentionally. Some of you are flighty. and you, there's, It's one thing on Monday and it's something else on Thursday. That's how you're wired. There's, it's okay. I want to encourage you to grab on to something and stick with it. Do your best, even those of you who have spiritual ADD. I want you to do your best to, be, to persevere. I'm not asking you to be who you're not. I'm just asking you to persevere until something happens, at least through the end of the month. For some of you, that's a marathon to think about three weeks. But I want you to do the best that you can. Last thing. Am I prepared for hardships? Paul says, I think he says you must. Isn't that the word? Let's find that. We must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going, all right, if it's a must, am I ready? Am am I rocky, shallow soil? Am I going to bail when trouble and persecution comes from that parable of the soil in Matthew 13? Do I have deep enough roots that when things get difficult, I don't quit? You may not know this. There's a hundred million Christians today who are suffering solely because they're Christians. Only because of their relationship with Jesus, they're experiencing some form of suffering, some form of persecution, physical, economic. In some way, they're being pressed, they're being squeezed because of their relationship with Jesus. You see those stats up there on the screen about martyrs and and crimes and all of those things. And, and when I think about that, I'm th- that's not me. That's not us. Maybe at some point, maybe at some point, we will experience trouble and hardship here for being a Christian. And maybe you do. That may be something that you could say, you know what, I have. I've experienced trouble. I've experienced tribulation. The word there is squeezing is the word. I've experienced a, a pressure That's what that word trouble or hardship means. I've experienced that because of my relationship with Jesus. I honestly don't can't think of any time off the top of my head to say, yeah, I was squeezed. I experienced pressure because of my relationship with Jesus. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I don't know. And that may be again, that may be something that's in the cards for us. But I was thinking about that. I was wondering if what Paul would say to us here in Marietta, here in Cobb County, would be different. Thinking back to that parable of the soils, he said we must go through many hardships. He's speaking about that rocky, shallow soil. I wonder if it was us, if he would say, actually, you must fight through many distractions if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. You must fight through many distractions. We may experience trouble, and we absolutely want to have deep enough roots to make it. But I wondered to me if he would say, you've got to fight through some distractions if you're going to enter the kingdom. Your soil is not necessarily prone to being rocky and shallow. It's much more prone to being weedy and crowded. The chances are much more likely that, that the gospel, what God wants to do in your heart, is going to be choked out by the deceitfulness of wealth, 
by the worries of life. Mark says the desires of other things. That's much more likely to happen. That sounds like me, and that sounds like us. If I think about trouble or persecution on one hand, or I think about worries of life, deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things, on the other hand, this sounds much more like Marietta than this. If I'm on, I mean, it just seems that way. It doesn't mean we're not going to experience trouble, and we want to have deep roots. But it also means, but to me, it's saying, hey, y'all, me, y'all, you're going to have to fight through some distractions if you want to enter the kingdom of God. That's going to be the main obstacle for where you live right now. You live in this time of luxury and abundance, and, and you've got to be aware that all of those things are going to fight for your attention and for your affection and for your time and for your money. And you've got to be aware of that. The worries of this life, that's not things that are sinful. It's just things that consume us. The word worry actually speaks about being pulled in many directions. Does that describe you at all? The worries of this life, the pulling in many directions, that can compete with space in our heart for God. The deceitfulness of wealth. Money makes promises it can't keep. I'll take care of you. I'll give you worth. I'll give you value. I'll be your security. Money can't do any of that, but it promises all of it, and so we chase it. We serve it. We worship it because it lies to us. The deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things, you know what that is. And so I was thinking in my own heart, is there enough space? Like, are there a lot of weeds in here? Are there things competing? And the answer is, of course. There are things competing in my heart and in my mind with, with Jesus. They're competing. They're, they're threatening to choke out what he wants to do in my heart and what he wants to do in my mind. And I thought of something, maybe two things. You may have something else. Affection and commitment. Those two things is what I was thinking about as a solution, as an antidote. Both whether my, if my heart's shallow or if my heart is crowded. If, if the soil is rocky or if the soil is weedy, I think the response is the same. One is to say, God, I need you to capture my heart. I need you to capture me, captivate me with who you are. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the importance of, of recognizing this deep and profound love that he has for us. It's that love that compels us. It doesn't just compel us to go, although it does do that. It also refocuses and reprioritizes where we are now. The love of Christ compels us. And so, God, captivate my heart. Captivate me. Capture my heart. I want to be enamored by you and by who you are. And then I want to commit. I want to choose to live a life that's committed to you. I want you to captivate my heart. That's what I'm asking you to do. I can't do that. And so I'm asking you, captivate my heart. And I want to give you time and space for sure. But I'm asking you to do that. Reveal yourself to me. Capture my heart. And my commitment to you is I want to live committed to you. Jesus says where your money is, your heart is. And so if if one of the issues is deceitfulness of wealth, then I'm going to commit to giving to things that God cares about. Because what Jesus says is if my money's there, then my heart's going to follow. And so that's one of the things I can do, simply. That's choosing to live committed. I want to choose to give him time on a regular basis. And you have to play out all of the implications of what it looks like for you to live committed. But those two things, asking him to captivate your heart and choosing to live committed, I think over time it helps you pull weeds out. And it helps you pull out rocks too, remove rocks, so your roots can be deep. 
and so that the soil, there's space in your heart for the things God wants to do to grow. Let's pray. I don't actually, are you, do you have a ministry song? Of course you do. Did Bill do awesome? Yay! Just you? Okay. Uh, we'll have some prayer teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. So if you're on one of those ministry teams, if you go ahead and make your way to the front. It's a lot of different things that I threw out there, and you can grab onto whichever ones resonate uh, most clearly with you. This is from Psalm. Somebody gave, slipped this to me during worship. This is from Psalm 143, and this may speak about some of this idea of love and commitment. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I've put my trust in you. So there's that idea. God, captivate me. Show me the way I should go, for I entrust my life to you. I'm committed to living the way that you want me to. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So God, my prayer is, that's my prayer for the men and women in this room. That every morning they would be in awe of your unfailing love for them. That song that we sang, you are good and you are never going to let us down. You don't do that. God, I pray that that chorus would be deep in our hearts, not just in our heads. This idea of every morning hearing about this unfailing love that you have for us. And that would compel us to live a life that's fully committed, fully devoted to you. We recognize that you're a jealous God and you have every right to be. Every right to be. You created us, you formed us, you knit us together. In our mother's womb, and you redeemed us at a high, high price, the price of your son. And God, ultimately, I think, at our most honest, we're glad that you don't share. We're thankful that you don't share us with anyone else. That the commitment that you ask from us, you've already demonstrated to us by sending your son on our behalf. So, God, every morning would you remind the men and women in this room of this deep and abiding and unfailing love that you have for them. God, I want to pray um, just for two groups. I want to pray for people who would say, I'm experiencing trouble. That's me. God, I pray that you would give them grace to persevere. I pray that you would strengthen them and encourage them. And even as Paul went and established elders in the churches, I pray that you would bring men and women around them to support them and encourage them and to speak life into them. They would not feel like they're on their own as they're facing whatever difficulty it is. As they're being uh, pressed and squeezed, God, we pray for the fruit of your spirit to be uh, what comes out of them. So would you encourage them in these moments? And God, I pray for those who would say, if I'm honest, there's all kinds of weeds in my heart. And I kind of like them. I'm not certain I want them pulled out. God, would you capture our hearts again and would you show us? Would you show us how to rightly order our lives? Let me tell you all one thing and then we'll be done. I got a ticket two weeks ago. I was going 34 in a school zone. You're supposed to go 25. I was going 34. I did it. Like, give me the ticket. And the way the guy, it was, it's down a hill and around a curve, which sounds like I'm justifying. So it's a 40, and I'm going down the hill and around the curve. 
And in my mind, like, I think it was the Lord. Slow down. And so I do. I just don't slow down enough. And then the way the guy pulls me over, he does the here. He flips on his lights and he gives me the wave. And he pulls me over in the parking lot of the school. (laughs) Actually, someone who goes to church got pulled over with me. So I don't know if that's good or bad to be pulled over with your pastor. But she was pulled over with me as well. And so I'm pulled over. Um, My car is pretty distinctive. I texted Mary Margaret said, I'm going to be late. I'm getting a ticket. And she said, did anybody see you? I was like, everyone who's coming to the school sees me. I'm right here in the park. I'm in the drop-off line, and I have the only car like mine in the county. So, yeah, they see me. Now, I wasn't embarrassed necessarily. Like, I did it. I deserved the ticket. And I was thinking about that with that song that we were singing, Closing Out Worship, this, this idea of surrender in the two different pieces. I have this sense, slow down, and I don't. And then I get pulled over. And it's not about God keeping me from something because I was speeding. It's the difference in how he handles. If I'd slowed down, it's just between me and him. I didn't. And so it's between me and everyone who's dropping off at the sixth grade academy. (laughs) It's just different. And I want this to be a spot. I, I want this to be a place for you to respond. This is not like that. We're not, no one is trying to embarrass you or humiliate you. God does not work that way. The devil wants to blow your life up, and he wants it plastered on the front page. God doesn't. If he exposes, he's exposing for the sake of healing, not for the sake of humiliating. And so I want you to have freedom to respond today. Whatever's going on, I don't want you to be embarrassed to come forward and say, I have these weeds in my heart. Or you know what? I don't know if things got difficult. I don't know if I would st- I don't know. I don't know if my roots are deep enough. I don't want you to be embarrassed to respond because when those situations come, it'll be a lot worse than if you respond to the Lord right now and what he's stirring in your heart. So you guys can stand, come forward as you will, and Bill will dismiss us after this song.